So as we turn again this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. If you turn there in your Bibles, you'll find that on page 1201 in your pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. And please do, please follow along with us this morning as we go through this great text. We began this section last week in Hebrews 9, 6. And as we did, we spoke of this text as reflecting a path. Uh, that it was as if we were climbing a mountain. And as we moved up that path, and as is often the case in climbing a mountain, as you grow ever closer to the peak, it often becomes something that's harder to see clearly. Sometimes it's completely obscured. Yet every step that is taken leads one closer to the top, closer to that grand peak, and closer to the glorious vista. So it is indeed with the, the biggest peak of all, as uh, climbers like to call it, the Big E, Mount Everest, looming over 29,000 feet, yet just 200 feet below that peak is an outcropping called the Hillary Step. A nearly vertical face, which is named after Sir Edmund Hillary, one of the first to climb the peak that's been recorded. And it is one of the most dangerous and technically difficult parts of climbing Mount Everest. As if climbing to 29,000 feet with nearly no oxygen wasn't enough. One danger on the Hillary Step is that off of one side is a 10,000 foot vertical drop. The dangers then on this face and throughout the mountain are evident. And as one comes to this obstacle, the peak is totally obstructed from view. Although the tallest mountain in the world and only 200 feet away, you have absolutely no sight of it. So as you prepare to climb this life-threatening face, you don't even see how close you are to the summit. This can create a very demoralizing situation. You're walking and walking, you're climbing and climbing, and yet you can't see the top. And yet a life-altering or even life-ending obstacle stands in your path. Well, this isn't just true for Mount Everest. This can be true for our lives as well. Many of you have had these obstacles that have arisen. All of us know of such events, even if after the obstacle was overcome, it didn't seem quite as monumental in hindsight as it did looking ahead. Yet as it arose, it seemed an unconquerable situation. And all the time, you can't see the top. You can't see over the obstacle. The Hillary step is blocking the path to the peak of Everest. Well, this progression of the path is exactly what we see in our text. And in fact, even the initial points can present significant and detrimental obstacles to the peak and to the view that is presented for us if they're not rightly understood particularly in that they can cloud our view. If these initial steps are not understood, then one doesn't realize the incredible peak and the glorious vista that lies ahead. So let's come back to our text in Hebrews chapter 9. Our title from last week, which we continue in, is The Inconceivable Revelation of Glory. The Inconceivable Revelation of Glory, part 2. 
I'm going to begin in verse 1 because this is all one unit of text. So I want to read our text for us and then we'll move very quickly to the new material that will begin in chapter 11. But follow along as I read Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared. The outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The inconceivable revelation of glory. This inconceivable revelation began with the revelation of the tabernacle, which started back in verse 1. Our section here in verses 1 to 12 is a comparison of the two tabernacles. It is the third comparison that we've seen in this main body of the book of Hebrews where the theme of the book is presenting Jesus' superiority over the high priesthood. We saw first the comparison of the ministries, the high priests of the Jewish background and Jesus's high priesthood. Then we saw the comparison of the two covenants, the old covenants, the old Mosaic covenant, which the priests administered, and the new covenant, the covenant of peace, which Jesus Christ inaugurated in his blood. And now we come to this comparison of the two tabernacles. Verses 1 to 5 revealed for us those components of the tabernacle. And if you went back and you read through Exodus 25 to 27, as we suggested a few times, you would see all of those details brought forth. An incredible intricacy in how God reveals the tabernacle and how it is to be constructed. This was an incredible picture of earthly glory. From outside, it seemed rather unimpressive. It was like a large tent. 
But like all tents where all of the people lived in those days, it was simply a box covered with skin. Now this again was larger at 30 feet by 60 feet by 30 feet tall. So it was significantly bigger than any of the tents in which the people lived. But nonetheless, it was just a large skin-covered box. But when you got inside, you saw this glory. You saw these walls, which were wood-lined on the interior, and that wood covered in gold. And you saw the shimmering of the lampstand, which dimly lit this room that was the holy place, or the outer tabernacle, as it's referred. And then the veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the altar of incense sitting against that where continual offering was made through the incense to the Lord as a sweet aroma to him and reminder of the children of Israel. Behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the golden cherubim, wings spreading side to side of that 30-foot room and touching behind the mercy seat. An incredible picture of earthly glory. And as these were described, there was a progression in these rooms, much like the progression we've spoken of in our illustration of climbing up a mountain path. But here, the progression is a spiritual progression. It is one that is indicating greater and greater holiness. We are beginning in the holy place, the outer room, and the priests enter there on an ongoing basis. But into the most holy, the holy of holies, only the high priest enters one time on the Day of Atonement. This signifying, again, a greater degree of holiness. And the whole idea of holiness is separation from sin. That is that is what holiness means. And the tabernacle progression evidenced this separation from sin. Because as you got further and further in, you saw more of the holiness of God. And there was a further separation from the world and from sin. Verses 6 to 7 then further revealed that progression of holiness. Only not through the fixtures of the tabernacle as the first Five verses had done, but now through the men who ministered there, through the high priests who were continually going in to trim the lampstands as the lamp was never to be allowed to go out, one lamp for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the altar of incense always to be burning, and the high priest, the only one who could trim and add incense to that. So each of these focusing on uh, an element of holiness, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest went on the Day of Atonement. The high priest had to enter, as it said, with blood. And as we saw last week, it really he had to enter twice with blood. First, the blood of the bull, which he sacrificed for his own sin, so that he was able to come as high priest. They, he had to prepare himself before he could even make offering for the people. This is very much akin to what we understand of the Lord's table, which we'll partake of shortly. And how our hearts are being prepared before we come to this sacred table. As we come to partake in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, it tells us that we are to be those who are pursuing holiness, that we are to be righteous with the Lord, that we are keeping short accounts. This is the same component which we see in this escalating holiness throughout the two different rooms. 
And at the end of verse 7, this is again revealed because this sacrifice was for this unique category of sins. Those sins that are the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Not those committed in willful disobedience because per the old covenant, those sins were to be dealt with by stoning. So it was not those willfully disobedient sins. It wasn't the sins the people committed but recognized throughout the year because those sins were to be atoned for immediately. As soon as you realized that you had sinned against the Lord, albeit inadvertent and not willful on purpose, you were to go to the priest and you were to make atonement. Now these were for those sins of ignorance that were committed. Sins that were unknown by the people. These are the ones that were to be atoned for on the day of atonement. It tells us clearly that there were sins that the people had no idea they committed. Well, beloved, so also is it with us. We too have sins that we commit that we do not recognize. How are those addressed? Well, we'll get a picture of that as we get further along in our path. Well, all of this exposed the earthly glory of the first tabernacle. And then in verses 8 to 10 was the contrast of the two tabernacles directly established. And in these verses, the Holy Spirit is initially referencing the picture of the heavenly tabernacle. He does this in verse 8 by showing that the way to the holy place is not revealed. Now, as we talked about, that's a very unique phrase, the holy place in verse 8. It is not the outer tabernacle. It is not the earthly holy place. It is the same phrase used in Hebrews 8, 2. And it is telling us about the heavenly tabernacle. The way to the heavenly tabernacle is that which is not understood, has not yet been disclosed while this outer tabernacle is still standing. The reason that the path in verse 8 isn't disclosed is because the worshipers are still relying upon the old system. We understand the time frame. The book is written in 65 AD. Jesus has been crucified 35 years before. So Physically, the way is open, but for those who are holding to the old system, for those who are holding to a way other than through Christ, that way is not known. That way is not concealed. It has still not been disclosed. They can't be holding on to that covenant. And we know this because in the new covenant, there is no outer tabernacle. Because there is no veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies in the heavenly sanctuary. Because Christ has made the way. He has removed the separation from the Father. As he died on the cross at Calvary, the veil was rent top to bottom. No longer is there anything that precludes you, beloved, from going and having direct access to the Father. And for those Verse 9 reveals the ineffectiveness as well of those systems for those that are still holding to that old system where it says that the system is only a symbol. That word again, literally a parable, a picture. It is portraying something, but only in part. And it never perfected the conscience. Why? They were having continual atonement. 
They were to be bringing offering. They were to be recognizing their sin and coming before the Lord. Why did it not perfect the conscience? Because immediately there was a recognition that as soon as the offering was over, sin began to accrue again. And so they were never fully justified. Additionally, verse 10 confirms that these sacrifices were only for bodily issues. Notice dietary restrictions, cleansing rituals, all of these outer man requirements, not dealing with the issues of the heart and of the inner man. And all of these were external and unknown until a time of reformation. Again, as we discussed, that reformation being a time when that which is crooked is made straight. That reformation is showing us the contrast that exists between the old system, which cannot perfect, which only deals with sins of ignorance, to the new system, to the heavenly sanctuary. Well, these verses set up that contrast of the two tabernacles, and a momentary thought of the heavenly tabernacle has been illuminated by the Spirit of God in verse 8. And it is compared to that earthly tabernacle, which is only a symbol. But as yet, we don't see the peak. We, we've come through much of this progression, but all of this simply reveals the weakness of the old system. But in our third point, we move to the title's fulfillment. That is to the revelation of inconceivable glory. And our third point, as we had covered those first two last week, is the immeasurable glory revealed. The immeasurable glory revealed in verses 11 to 12. Our third point begins in verse 11, but when Christ appeared. What a glorious beginning. The phenomenal contrast to all that's gone on. But when Christ but I hope that, that that echoes every element of import in your entire lives. Everything before, but when Christ. But when Christ opened your eyes to the truth of who he was. But when Christ showed you the sin that existed in your life. But when Christ showed you the glories and excellencies of his Father and of eternity in heaven with him which awaited. But when Christ it is, it is a clear transition from the old system with all of its weaknesses. Glorious as it was, never demeaned in the text, but nonetheless not carrying forth all that the new tabernacle held in Christ. But when Christ appeared, the word appear has the idea of the first appearance of something. We see the same context when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for sins. Or the idea of a coming of a king who is much anticipated and suddenly has, arriv has arised. So also is the same consideration when Jesus comes into the picture. The earthly son of God now has come, now has appeared. And that appearance is a glorious appearing. It is the climax of the entrance. This is the view. This is the picture of the mountain peak. And his appearing is as verse 11 tells us, as the high priest of the good things to come. 
That phrase, high priest of the good things to come, is parallel with Christ. They are both considered equal with one another and could be replaced as the subject of the sentence. So we could say the high priest of the good things to come appeared or Christ appeared. They are synonymous and meaning the same idea. The author here is telling us very specifically, as always is the case, as I was reminded even this morning in Sunday school in Mike's class, there's great specificity in the terms that the scripture uses to talk about Christ, to talk about Jesus, to talk about the Son. And here he uses Christ because it is his office that is being brought forward, his role as Messiah and as Redeemer that is being proclaimed for us. The first thing this phrase does is exalt Jesus above all other high priests. But it also reveals something very exciting. It talks about good things to come. It talks about a future condition. The things which have not yet arisen. For the people of the Jewish nation, they have heard of the good things to come throughout their history. Moses began to tell them about fulfillment if they were obedient in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. We see all of the prophets throughout scripture, all of the major and minor prophets, talking about the good things to come if there would be obedience on the part of Israel. They have heard over and over again about those good things. But when Christ appeared, he is the high priest of the good things to come. These good things are now evidenced through this one, through this Christ. The contrast, as is brought forward, continues when it talks about the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is the heavenly sanctuary that we spoke of back in verse 8. It is greater and it is more perfect because it is complete. It did not have the weaknesses of the former old system. It was not waylaid with those who could not fully atone for sin. It was not held back because it could not perfect the consciences of those who participated. For this was a complete system. This was a more perfect tabernacle. And the contrast of the greatness of the more perfect tabernacle occurs and is presented to us in two comparative phrases that follow, both of them in the negative. The first is that it is not made with hands. This is a greater and more perfect tabernacle which is not made with hands. Well, that means it is obviously opposite of the old tabernacle, of the tent in the wilderness. For what happened with that tabernacle? Whenever the Shekinah glory, the cloud that was God, lifted above the tabernacle, then the Levites knew and all the children of Israel knew it was time for them to move. So they would load up all of the details. They would take down the tabernacle, fold up all of those skins, pull down all of those gold-covered boards and protect them, put the poles through all of the features and the fixtures of the tabernacle, and they would go. And when they got to the next place where the cloud settled, they would set it all back up. It was literally made with hands every time they moved. But not so this tabernacle. 
we find another element of this tabernacle that follows. Not only is it not made with hands, it is not of this creation. Not of this creation. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation account. Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation of all things, is it not? There is nothing that was made that is not covered in Genesis 1 and 2. We also know that that creation is that which was accomplished by Christ, as Colossians 1.16 tells us. Colossians 1 and 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The visible and the invisible, the thrones, the dominions, the powers, all of these elements, which are not just physical, are all created by Christ, according to Colossians 1.16. But this is not of this creation. This is uh, something that is far beyond that. This is a tabernacle that is outside of all of creation. And it isn't just because it's in the heavens. For if we went back to Hebrews 4.14 we would see there that the heavens also are included in the creation by our author. This tabernacle is outside both the heavens and the earth. This is the pre-creation divine tabernacle which will be eternally in heaven with God. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 14 and verse 1. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus coming again to receive his children. This is more of the good things that verse 11 spoke of. The joys of heaven that wait. Beloved, I pray that as a believer, you are excited about that every day. To consider all of the, the mess and the muck and the mire of this earth that you will be one day free from. That you will see the perfection of your Savior. You will see his glorious visage, his flowing white hair. You will see his nail-pierced hands. And he will embrace you. And these ought to excite you. And this is what Jesus was talking about in the good things to come. And as he told them that there were many rooms, and this is the heavenly tabernacle, which is not of this creation. And the comparison of this first path through is such a dramatic consideration because in all of these proclamations that he brings forth as he discusses this tabernacle, the greater and more perfect one not made with hands, not of this creation, he speaks to us about how that is arrived at. And he says that it is indeed through that greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is the way that each must come to Christ. That dramatic contrast of that tabernacle is followed with a second passage through in verse 12. Where it says, the, not through the blood of goats. Another negative comparison. So we had 
two negatives, not with hands, not of this creation, and now not through the blood of bulls and goats. We looked last week at Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement sacrifices. However, on that day, there was one blood and one goat. We see in verse 12 that he's talking about the plural blood of goats and calves. That is referencing all of the days of atonement, all of the sacrifices. None of those allowed the worshiper access to this heavenly sanctuary. This was far superior to that. Even we see that the culmination of all of those sacrifices never proved sufficient. Rather, the comparison in the next phrase, which says, it is through his own blood. As the first means of the, through a greater tabernacle is superior, so much more is this contrast far greater with this comparison of these elements of the blood of bulls and calves versus his blood. His blood is indeed the greatest comparison. It is fully perfect. Blood that is shed is received by the earth in the sacrificial offerings. It is a picture for the worshiper to realize that as the blood of this animal is being spilt and is being received by the earth, something that we saw all the way back in Genesis 4 and Genesis 9, that it is a reminder to that one of how offensive his sin is to God and that through the death of this animal, his sin is being paid for. But we've seen that that is unable to perfect the conscience because it is not a perfect sacrifice. It is only the blood of Christ that provides that eternal sacrifice. One commentator says, the expiation of sins is connected with substitution. That means that the removal of sins comes in a manner through a substitute, through a sacrifice. And we have just been shown what that sacrifice is. is. It is the perfect blood of Jesus. The main idea of verses 11 and 12 is in the next clause there in verse 12 where it says he entered the holy place. The term for holy place is the same as back in verse 8 and confirms the heavenly tabernacle. This, this sums up the superiority of the heavenly tabernacle. It is not one where the high priest entered once per year and never was there connection with God other than that. This was now a place where Jesus as high priest had entered and there was full access granted. And we know that that is the case because of the next statement, once for all. This is such an important concept and we see it repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. Once for all. Listen to Hebrews 7, 27. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. As he offered up himself and now as he has offered up his blood, these two phrases are synonymous. It is his blood which he presented. It is himself. It was his body which he brought forth as that which atoned fully for sins. 
We see the once for all concept carried forward in Hebrews 9.26 where it says, But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. Hebrews 9.28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of man. Hebrews 10.2, the worshiper having once been cleansed. Hebrews 10.10, by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrifice of Christ is a once for all effort. There is no need to repeat it. Those who would proclaim that they do repeat it through heretical processes are in sin. This sacrifice was complete in every manner. It completely cleansed. It completely sanctified. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The word redemption here can also be translated as ransom. This is where our full understanding of Christ's atoning work comes from. This is the under, underlying component and text when we consider the ransom theory of our atonement. That we have been purchased by Christ for God. It's a foundational concept and we could go on and on about it and we will touch on it more in the weeks ahead. But what we see is that this is the peak of the mountain. Jesus, as the better high priest, entered through a greater tabernacle by his perfect blood. And through this, he received eternal redemption. Not for himself. Jesus did not need to be redeemed. No, that eternal redemption, beloved, it is for you and it is for me. That is the verdict of all that has been brought forward, that we are those who are redeemed. There is never again a need for that price to be paid. For all who would call upon his name, they have received eternal redemption. It was here that the Jewish believer was brought to recognize the watershed issue in their belief. Up until now, the superiority of Jesus' ministry was indeed undeniable, but it did not discount or remove the ministry of the high priest. Also, the superiority of the new covenant was unquestionable, but yet still the old covenant was in process. The temple was still up in Jerusalem, and they were still in consideration of its practice. But now the superiority of the heavenly tabernacle presents the earthly tabernacle in an unacceptable option. One that represents a system continually laden with sin. Jesus' superior high priesthood confirmed uncontestably that the eternal tabernacle was their only option. None could choose a system with a conditional or a short-term forgiveness over one with eternal redemption. This is a peak that cannot be climbed to simply take a few pictures to confirm that you have been there and then turn around to return back to the bottom. No, this is a place that one needs to stop and ponder. One needs to stop and consider the excellencies of Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice to recognize and consider these two systems that went on in this tabernacle. That continual pouring out of the blood of animals, which never could forgive. 
versus the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ, which has eternally redeemed the believer. To recognize the good things to come that lie for all who will believe in Christ. The joys of heaven. The glories of full forgiveness and removal of sin. This is a peak that we simply cannot ignore. It is here that we marvel at Jesus, that we stand amazed at the Christ and recognize that, beloved, this is where our pardon was sealed. This is the realization of the Samaritan woman when she ran into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. As we addressed even in Sunday school this morning, this was the realization of the demoniac who when Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Having been freed from that legion of demons as, as the people told Jesus to go because of the lack and the attack on their livelihood in the killing of the swine which the demons had accomplished, the man clung to the feet of Christ and said, please let me go with you. And he, he went away and Jesus said, no, you must remain. And so he goes away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. The first witness for Christ, the first missionary for Christ was a Gentile demon-possessed man. What glory for those of us who are Gentile and fallen and have no value to bring before our king. But he has taken and used each of these because they have understood this truth that by his blood they have received eternal redemption. As we understand this, our love and joy ought to be magnified and multiplied as we stand on this peak and gaze across the vista of what our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done for us. If this overwhelming love and joy isn't your reaction, maybe this is the Hillary step in your life. The vertical rock face you can't see over. The peak being only a few feet away. Remember when Jesus spoke about the rooms prepared in his father's house? Well, one of the disciples couldn't see over either. He too had a Hillary's step in front of him. We pick the text up again in John 14, 4. And you know the way where I am going, the Lord said. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus has been telling them over and over, and he did not see. He could not understand. And Jesus said to him in John 14 and 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
If you are not seeing, if you are not understanding this love and this joy, it may be because you have not recognized that Jesus is the sole way. He is the only path. If this vista of Christ isn't your view, what path are you seeking? Are you seeking a path that would exalt you as being a pretty good person? Perhaps you are. Not according to the scripture's admonition. Are you, are you seeking a path that says, I've done some good things. I, I've done some good works. And therein, I, I will make it to heaven. There are no good ways. There are no good works. It is only through Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If you are holding to anything but Christ today, let me plead with you to come to know Jesus. Open your eyes to recognize that it is his shed blood alone which can cleanse you. And if you have not accepted that, if you have not done as our scripture reading from Romans 9 said, and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and evidence those by a continual confession of Christ, by a life that exemplifies the joy and the truth of living by his word, then you are not his and you are yet in your sins. Beloved, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is the inconceivable revelation of glory. It is this which must draw us each day to deeper love and reverential awe of our Savior. It is this awe, this love, this, this joy, which I pray further permeates your heart as you consider Christ and what he has done on the cross of Calvary.